I know last time I shared a couple of weeks ago, I started off with a Billy Joel song. Uh, and thank you uh, for, for those who came sang, singing it to us afterwards. That was really nice. I'm not going to start off with Billy Joel. I really am sorry about that. I, I was tempted to try and get a bit of Uptown Girl in here this morning, but uh, I'll leave that to another time. Uh, but in the, same, in the same year that Billy Joel released that song that I started with last week, that wonderful hit song, uh, The River of Dreams, in the same year that he released that hit, back in good old 1993, which is 30 years ago today, just to, just to help you feel old this morning, because I don't know how you feel when 30 years today. Uh, I, I actually started my job as a morning paper boy. I started a job as a morning paper boy. I already had a paper round after school delivering papers. I delivered the Liverpool Echo after school. Uh, it was spelt in Scouse. You pronounced it in Scouse, and that's how it worked, and I delivered the Liverpool Echo. But when I became 13, or as I approached the age of 13, I was now, or so I was told, le- legally eligible to be able to get up at half five in the morning, carry my weight in paper, and deliver the national and international news into people's letterboxes. And I loved it. I loved being a paper boy. I absolutely loved being a morning paper boy. I loved walking. I still love walking. I loved the smell of the fresh morning air. And if you want to know what fresh air feels like, get out early in the morning. You'll sense fresh air. It is beautiful. I loved the quietness of a morning. I loved how peaceful and still the mornings were before the business and the roads and people started going about. And I loved, and I still love, the smell of freshly printed ink. I love that smell more than I think Katie loves the smell of dog's paws. Which, if if you, I discovered that about Katie this week. Katie loves the smell of dog's paws. She does. Try it, she says. But I, I love, like, like Katie loves the smell, that, that smell of freshly printed newspaper is beautiful. And I, it also came with the perk of getting paid £7.50 a week. Now, I know that wasn't, that wasn't much back then. It, it wasn't much back then. It's not much back now. But it, it did allow me, it did kind of instill in me a work ethic. And it did allow me to treat myself to a chippy, a nice chippy tea every Saturday night with that £7.50. So as a 13-year-old, it was the best of times. It was a wonderful time, but it was also the worst of times. Because when I started delivering the news, for the first time in my life, really, I started paying attention and I started seeing the news. And what I saw in the news wasn't good. And it shocked me, I'll be honest with you. Now, don't get me wrong, I wasn't a naive kid growing up. I grew up on a council estate in northern England in a benefits household. And so growing up, I wasn't wrapped in bubble wrap. I wasn't protected from the world. I knew that people could mistreat each other. But the scale of how, of how inhumane we could be to each other, however, well, that was unknown to me up until that point. For some reason, naively, I had thought that inhumanity was a thing of the past. Something that had gone, something that had been, something that was only told then in, as a lot of kind of fictional stories for TV, dramas. And then as a 13-year-old, I found myself delivering the news of a horrific killing of a two-year-old boy called Jamie Bolger, if people remember that. I read about the civil war in Rwanda and the civil war in Bosnia and the horrific extent of the ethnic cleansing and the mass rape that, that took place in those conflicts. And there was the exposure, I don't know if you remember this, the exposure of the rape and the murder of young women who'd been buried for years and behind the walls and in the foundations of the home and Fred of Rose West, if people remember those stories breaking. 
I remember the howling conditions of Romania's orphans, even though it had been exposed in the 90s, it was still making headlines then, because the experts were still teasing out how this had happened, why it had happened, and how it was the result and the consequence of a repressive government. And then there was news of the World Trade Center bombing, and the Oklahoma bombing, and the IRA bombings in Northern Ireland, and Manchester, and in Warrington. I don't know what it was, but as a little boy, it just felt like in the 90s, there was bombings. seemed to be everywhere. And then the photojournalists, they were sharing scenes of the famine and the disease that was ripping through Sudan as a consequence of the civil war and the tactics of the civil war that was taking place. And so I don't know how many of us can remember that photograph of a starving Sudanese child with a vulture, a praying vulture, lurking in the background. It was a horrible photograph. And so there were stories of corrupt governments and war and poverty and injustice and oppression. And as a 13-year-old, it just seemed to be everywhere. And I don't mean to kind of undermine this when I say it, but I did a lot of growing up as a teenager because of delivering the news. And I found myself as a child with no faith. And even now I find myself as a man with faith, still being constantly amazed to use the words of one Holocaust survivor, of man's inhumanity to man. I'm still amazed to it. And I'll be honest with you, I wish I could go back to a time where I hadn't seen these things. That would be nice, wouldn't it? I can understand, I can empathize totally with Ecclesiastes' words, with Coalette's words, the, the teacher's word in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 18, where he says, the greater my knowledge, the greater my sorrow. And in the modern world, we have another way of saying that. Don't we? we say it the other way around, ignorance is bliss. And of course, we know it isn't. We know it's not bliss. We know this. We may, it might sue me not to know, but we know it's not bliss for those who are experiencing injustice and oppression. And so whether we know it or not, we're aware of it or not, we're deaf to it or not, there is pain and sorrow in our world, isn't there? Lots of it. Now that's not the same as saying that our world is totally depraved or it's corrupt and it's big, bad and ugly. Our world is not those things. That would be a caricature. But our world today in its history and in our present day, it is shot through with inhumanity. And we need voices, don't we? We need voices. We need people who are going to open our eyes and open our ears to that inhumanity and say to us, look. And so with that in mind, we're going to turn to a voice. And we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 16, picking up from where Helen left us last week when she looked at time. So Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 16. If you've got this, it'd be great if you could follow it in your Bible. If you've not got a Bible, come and speak to us. We'd love you to have a Bible. But the message translation, to read from the message translation this morning, puts it this way, translates it this. I took another good look at what's going on. The very place of judgment, corrupt. The place of righteousness, corrupt. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There's a right time for everything, every deed, and there's no getting around it. I said to myself regarding the human race, God is testing the lot of us, showing us up as nothing but animals. Humans and animals come to the same end. Humans die, animals die. We all breathe the same air. So really there's no advantage in being human, none. Everything's smoke, everything's vapor. We all end up in the same place. We all come from dust. We all end up in dust. Nobody knows for sure that the human spirit rises to heaven or that the animal spirit sinks into the earth. 
And so I made up my mind that there's nothing better for us men and women than to have a good time in whatever we do. That's our lot in life. Who knows if there's anything else to life? Next, I turn my attention to all the outrageous violence that takes place on this planet. The tears of the victims, no one to comfort them. The iron grip of oppressors, no one to rescue those victims from them. And so I congratulated the dead who are already dead instead of the living who are still alive. But luckier than the dead or the living is the person who has never, ever been, who has never seen the bad business that takes place on this earth. He's a happy fellow, isn't he? It's hard-hitting, isn't it? It is, isn't it? It's hard-hitting. And as we've said in previous weeks, Colette is the central character of this book of Ecclesiastes. He's groping for meaning in a world that he seems to think is meaningless. And so far over the past two and a half chapters, he's, he's given us some very grand, wide, panoramic kind of sweeping views and statements of life. But in the middle of chapter three, he starts to take a detailed look. He starts to begin to take a more focused look on things in life. And as he does so, he repeats himself. He repeats himself a lot. All good teachers do. That's my excuse. All good teachers do. And so themes that we've already looked at, that he's already touched on, he, they reoccur in this passage that we've just read. Life, he says, is nothing but vapor. Death, he says, nullifies and levels every advantage that humans think they have. Not only over against each other, which he touched on in chapter 2 when he talked about being wise or foolish, but in this chapter, he says, even with animals as well. He says the seasons and the times are fixed and we can't know them. He is resigned like a teenager to the fact that there's nothing to do, better to do in life. He has issues with God. I've got to put that bluntly. He has issues with God. Not as someone who doesn't believe in God, but as someone who does believe in God. And he's certainly not upbeat or motivational, is he? You won't see those words on a poster with a cat hanging from a kind of clothesline. You won't see these words. And yet his words resonate. Don't we? We feel them. He may be an ancient Israelite, but his words are still relevant to us today. And they speak of tensions. They speak of struggles that we all carry, but maybe we don't always voice. And maybe I'm alone in this, but Koalef's observations, those observations that come from an honest faith, well, they hit me, they resonate with me, and they hit hard and they hit home, especially here when he talks about probably one of the biggest questions humanity asks in life, which is the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. That's a big topic, isn't it? So I hope you've got about three hours on your clock today. Is that all right? I'm only joking. I'll be honest with you. What I'm going to say this morning will not do justice to the topic of the problem of evil. Please don't hold me up to a certain target I can't meet. But I will add Koalef's words in Ecclesiastes. They don't do justice to this topic either. And they're not the only words we should have on the matter. But I do want us, I do want us to sit with Koalef. I do want us to feel the depth of what he feels, to know the angst he feels, and to allow his words to stir up in us and awaken us something in us. So let's take a look at his words. So if you want to look at his two chunks, at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, well, they parallel each other. You could put them side to side, really. You could put them next to each other as he looks at one point and then looks at it again. So at the end of chapter 3, he highlights that there's injustice and corruption in the places of authority, that the places should uphold, that, that uphold and that should distribute justice. Well, they're not doing it. And so he's looking and he's highlighting the fact that there's abuse in economic and political power. 
Well, it's good to know that's a thing of the past, isn't it? It's not, is it? It's still relevant today. And then in the end, beginning of chapter 4, it's like Koalef kind of zooms in on that. He zooms in on that and he observes the oppression as a result of that. The tears of countless victims. The violence that is done by the iron grip of this power. And with sorrow in his voice, he remarks at the end of the, what, what I've just read. He remarks that there is no comforter for the victims and there's no helper to rescue them. I want you to note those words, comforter and helper. We'll come back to his remark there in a little while and we'll come back to look at who he's aiming at, who he's aiming it at. And in both cases, after he highlights these things in chapter three and chapter four, he then turns to the cheerful topic of death. He likes to look at death quite a lot and it's not easy to look at. And so maybe in chapter three, before anyone can console him, with the idea that, well, it's all right, it's hard in this life. Before anyone can console him with the idea of a better existence in an afterlife, he states that nobody can know for sure that there is an afterlife. He won't be comforted by that idea. As far as he sees it, it's a false safety net. As far as Koalef is concerned, death is non-existence. We don't go on, we turn to dust, and that's that. And it's a tragedy. He sees it as a tragedy. And then in chapter 4, his observation gets even bleaker doesn't it? It's really bleak. In light of all the inhumanity that exists, he now envies the dead. And he envies those who have never even been born because in their non-existence, they have no memory and they've never seen and they have no perception of the inhumanity that exists. And so in his view, that would be ignorance and that would be bliss. That's pretty low, isn't it? I don't know about how you feel at this morning, but It's not easy to hear those words, is it? Is it? They don't weigh right, do they? There's something in me, I don't know about you, there's something in me that just wants to shrug that sentiment off. There's there's something in me that knows that they're heavy and they're heavy with lament. And I just kind of want to get, I don't know what it is, I I just kind of want to rush past those words at that point and, and do something that cheers me up. I kind of want to kind of go to the freezer and grab out some triple chocolate ice cream, grab a, pl- bl- grab a blanket, snuggle up on the couch and watch a rom-com like Notting Hill. I kind of want to do that kind of thing because that language is heavy. And yet we need, to have, we need to worry because it's not wrong in a sense. It's not wrong to lament, is it? To lament is a spiritually mature response to the suffering and the injustice that is in our world. If we don't remit lament, if we don't grieve over it, then I'll be honest with you, something is wrong in our hearts that God needs to fix. We need to spend time sitting with it. And it's because of this lament, and because it's the right thing to lament, I need to state this. I need to state, and I want you to know that Koalef is not desiring death per se. His words are a soul-deep expression of his extent of the disappointment in how, I suppose how to put it, how lifeless life is. Does that make sense? There's a quality that seems to be lacking, that if this is life, well, this seems wrong. And so what is desired is not death. What is desired is justice and wholeness, peace and righteousness. What he wants is life as it's meant to be. And so we need to remember, as we've looked at in previous weeks, Koalef hasn't changed his opinion on death. Death is his problem. It's not his friend. It's not his chum. He doesn't embrace death in this passage like it's his old mate who will help him out. Death is his enemy. It's his adversary. And it's death. 
death that has been propagated through inhumanity and violence and oppression, the Koalef longs to see the world released from. Life, he observes, is plagued by death. And he struggles with that. Life shouldn't be plagued by death, should it? And all the Christians in the room said, oh, we don't know. Life shouldn't be plagued by death, should it? That's not God's intent. Now, of course, in the midst of all of this, he says something interesting. He says something telling right in the middle of verse, in verse 17 of chapter 3. He hits a musical note, you could say, a musical note that it's usually a major key, an anthem of hope in the rest of the Jewish scriptures, in the rest of the Bible. He says in verse 17, I thought to myself, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. God will judge. That's good news, isn't it? And the Christian said, oh, we don't know. That's good news, isn't it? See, we might not appreciate this. We might not fully appreciate this. But in the vast majority of the scriptures... The vast majority of this book we pick up every week, every day, and read through, it wasn't written by people in power. It wasn't written by, with people with perks and with privileges and with positions of stateless. The Bible comes mostly from wailing people. People in exile. People in captivity. People suffering under oppression and injustice. And from, in all of the scripture, from Exodus to the prophets, there is this repeating sound I suppose a voice is crying for justice. Lives that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Lives that are hungry for God in his faithfulness to come and put things right. They expect God to judge. Are they wrong in that? Oh, please don't be quiet. Are they wrong in that? Are they wrong to expect God to judge? They're not, are they? And they expect it because, A, God is God. If God doesn't judge, he doesn't deserve that title. If he is God, he must judge. But he also understand it because of God is God. They expect God to judge because as we've sung this morning, they also understand God to be good. And so God has to do something, doesn't he, if he is good. Because if he does not, then he's not good. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? They understand that in this conflict, when it comes to oppression, they understand that God is not on the side of oppression and he's not on the side of injustice. And the prophets, the prophets constantly speak out of this impression that they have of God. Amos and Habakkuk, for example, preach against people who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Zechariah echoing the whole, I suppose, the whole stipulations of the Torah itself. They advocate for the protection of widows and orphans and strangers and the poor. And there's not an Old Testament prophet, I'll I'll, I'll encourage you to try and look. There's not a single Old Testament prophet that doesn't touch in his themes because the testimony of the Old Testament prophets is that God is good and he is set against oppression. Does that make sense? They know God is not on the side of anything that spoils or defaces or distorts or damages his beautiful creation and in particular anything that does that to his image-bearing Creatures, you and me. To put it another way, if God doesn't hate racial prejudice, he is neither loving or good. And the church said, no, they don't know. Come on, please don't be quiet. 
If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good or loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation by an act of proper judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit and bomb and bully and enslave one another, then God is neither loving nor good nor just nor wise. God is good and God will judge. And the whole biblical hope of that is is based on this very understanding of God. And so when the ancient writers looked at the disorder that existed in the world, they expected God to put it right. And furthermore, they celebrated that. They celebrated that one day God would. They looked forward to that day like a child looks forward to Christmas morning. They celebrated. They sang about it. It was a note of gladness. Let the sea, let the sea and everything in it shout his praise. Let the earth and all living things join in. Let the rivers clap their hands in glee. Let the hills sing their songs of joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge. And he will judge the world with justice and the nations with fairness. Says Psalm 98 verse 7 to 9. That's a song of gladness. It kind of reminds me for those who have read it. And I was reminded of it this week when I walked into Katie's office when she was telling me about the smell of dog's paws. Actually, that was a different day, wasn't it? About uh, C.S. Lewis and his wonderful book, uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. For those who have read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, or seen it. And in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, there's a country called Narnia that is gripped in this, I suppose, this oppressive power of winter. Always winter. Never Christmas. Never spring. Always winter. And it's grasped in the power of this white witch. But the residents of Narnia, well, they have a hope. They have hoped that one day Aslan, the great lion, he'll come and he'll sort things out and it'll be spring again. A hope that they, like the Israelites, put into song. And so you see C.S. Lewis's words. He says, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he burrs his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, it will be spring again. They're great words. I don't know whether he was inspired by Psalm 98, but it gets that feeling. It's good news that God is coming to judge. And so the Narnians, whether they be Narnians, they, they, like the Israelites, they knew that God or Aslan, they knew that God was not some safe, tame, timid creature that was on a leash, but he certainly was good. And because he's good, he will do what is good. If we don't believe that, we have no hope to offer this world. We don't. If God's as apathetic, not caring, is never going to do anything, is tolerant of everything, then we have no hope at all. See, this is good news. God will judge. And he will judge with fairness and righteousness. He will judge in a way that is not like human justice. Because when it comes to human justice, it's sometimes about revenge. It's sometimes about reparation. But God's justice is restoration. It's setting things as they should be. And that theme carries right onto the New Testament. So when John writes Revelation chapter 21, he writes about a day when God will dwell with his people where death will be all done with, sorrow will be done with, tears will be removed, and God declares, look, I am making all things new. What a day. 
What a day. I don't know about you, but my heart yearns for that day. It should. It should. God will step in. Praise God. God will step in. And it's because of this hope. It's become of this knowledge that God is good and God will do good. It's because of that, that often in Scripture, God is given the names helper and comforter. Which brings us back to what we've read in Ecclesiastes. Because as I've said, whenever this note of God coming and doing justice is normally sang in the Scriptures, it's normally sang in a major key. It's a triumphant sound. But Koalef, when he sings it in this passage, well, it's not triumphant. He sings it in a minor key, and it's part of his lament. See, he knows what the tradition he belongs to believes, and in a way he affirms that God will come and God will put things right, but it will be in some future far-off season set by God. And as his outcry in chapter 4 indicates His outcry is, well, what about now? What about now? The people suffering now have no helper and they have no comforter. And when he uses those words, helper and comforter, they're not aimed at me and you as if we should do something, although we should do something about injustice and oppression, but that's a topic for another time and not for this morning. Koalef is aiming these words at God. I suppose we could word it the other way around, a way, a way I hear it quite often in our world today. Where's God? Where's God? If God is good, then why doesn't God do something? And it's not atheists that say that often, because their answer to that is, well, there is no God. That's us. We do say it, don't we? We can be honest this morning. If church can't be a place where we can be honest, then we need to rethink how we do church. But we say it, don't we? We look at the state of the world and we say, God, come on, do something. And Koalef, Ecclesiastes, they're not alone in expressing this sentiment in the scriptures. I've said this before. I know I've said this before. But the words, how long, O God, how long, O Lord, they echo across in the Psalms and through the... Even in the prophets themselves, you know that God is on the side of, a, of, of not doing oppression. He, he, they know he's for justice. And it's because they know God is for justice that even the prophets themselves turn around to God and say, how long is it going to take? But for a Koalef, it's even a darker note than that. It's not how long. For Koalef, it's too long. Too long, oh God. Too long. And what causes this sting for him is once again his adversary of death. See, for Koalef, if death is non-existence, you need to think about this. There's a lot we could talk about death. We won't this morning. But if death is non-existence, and if God only steps in at some future point to put things right then, then okay, that helps the people then in that future point. But how does that give justice to those people who live now who will not exist then? Does that make sense as a problem? If death is non-existence, and when you die, that's it. But God steps in at some future point and puts everything right, fixes the world, there's no more pain, and there's no more sorrow, and there's no more oppression, and there's no more injustice, then great for those people then. But God, Koalef, is saying, what about now? 
What about the people who are suffering now? What about them? See, as one commentator puts it, Coleth's outcry in chapter 4, it almost displaces this affirmation he has of the fact that God will do divine justice. And we might expect Coleth to kind of come in and give, engage in some sort of defense of God or defense of God's ways or try and strain for some sort of resolution, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Coleth says nothing more. His faith is caught in this tension that God will do justice, but I see injustice now. And he gives no final word. Coalith offers no simple cliche answers. He just leaves it hanging there. And then he jumps on to another topic, which we'll explore next week. He just leaves us. Thanks, Coalith. Thanks for that. Thanks, mate. He just leaves us with it. It's like he leaves us looking at the brokenness and the inhumanity. And rightly, and I need to say this, and rightly he reminds us that death is not a satisfactory answer to death. Death is not a satisfactory answer to death. Now again, I know we want to get out the triple chocolate ice cream, grab the blanket, watch Notting Hill. I get it. These aren't easy things to talk about, are they? They're not easy things to talk about. And as I said in the first week of the series, my intent is not to try and tame Ecclesiastes. I think that's the wrong approach to Ecclesiastes. Or try and erode it down and make it smoother. There is method in his madness. There's a reason he speaks like this. And we need his words, we need these words in Ecclesiastes to awaken something in us, to stir some discontent up within us. His words resonate. They do so for a reason because these are not easy things to look at. And there's no easy answers to these vexing problems. And we can't just dodge them. We can't just ignore them. We have to face them. Face them knowing and honestly saying we're not sure. Because often, and it's a big misconception, people think that people who believe in God don't have questions. And that's not true. I'll be honest with you, I think we have more questions than most people who don't believe in God. It'd be easier, I think, sometimes not to believe in God. The problem is I know God is real. I've experienced something of God, and that knowledge of God arouses a ton of questions in me. Well, God, if you're real and you're good, then what about this? It's a natural thing. And I find it extraordinary and comforting that the Scripture themselves, they give voice to these frustrations and these questions. That's a good thing, isn't it? That's a good thing. That God breathes in a way that we like, yes, God, we get that. We, you meet us in our frustration. What a wonderful thing. However, I am aware that Coalef's problem, well, we look on it from a different horizon than he does. I look on it from the knowledge of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And that changes something. I'm also aware that we could say many things at this point about the problem of oppression and injustice and the problem of suffering. Lots that we don't have time for unless you want three hours of a lecture, which I'm sure you don't. You could literally fill a book upon book upon book upon book with reasonings and logic and abstract thoughts and philosophy about the problem of suffering. If you ever go to college or university or you read it as a book and you study ethics and philosophy and theology, you will spend weeks, weeks alone looking at the problem of suffering. You could even say that the problem of suffering is the question that underlies every other question in philosophy, ethics, and theology courses. And I'm not knocking this, but we can talk forever about it, can't we? We can talk forever. And maybe that's the problem. 
Maybe that's the problem because we're happy to engage in conversation. We're happy to enter into conversation about the problem of suffering. But what about entering into, as an act of compassion, the sufferings of others instead? And is it possible the answer to the problem of suffering is not philosophy or theodicy or theology or ethics, but what if the answer is incarnational love and solidarity? What if that's the right response to suffering? And I'm saying this, I'm saying this because I believe that God does not let the bullies win. Because he's God and he's good and he will judge. He will not let the bullies win. And I'm also aware that God does not stay distant from our sufferings either. And I believe those things because, because, and mainly because of the cross of Christ. American author and pastor Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, he writes this. A great book, by the way. Great book on this topic. He says, many people say, I can't believe in God when I see all the injustice in the world. But here is Jesus, the Son of God, who knows what it's like to be the victim of injustice, to stand up to power, to face corrupt systems and be killed for it. He knows what it's like to be lynched. I'm not sure how you believe in a God remote from injustice and oppression, but Christianity does not ask you to believe in a God that is distant from injustice and oppression. And that is why the Christian writer John Stott, another great writer, is able to say, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In a world of real pain, how can one worship a God who is immune to it? Let me say that again, John Stott's words. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In a world of real pain, how could one worship a God who is immune from it? Thank God we don't worship a God who is immune from it. See, Jesus is God's compassion incarnate. Jesus is God's help in flesh. The cross is an act of solidarity. I know there's so much more about the cross, but it's an act of solidarity with the suffering in the world, the suffering of the world. God suffers at the hands of our humanity. And in doing so, not only is God embodying his compassion and identifying with all those who suffer from injustice. But God is also exposing this injustice. He's exposing this inhumanity to us. He's condemning this godlessness, this sin, this failure on humanity to be what God wants us to be. He's exposing it to us, saying, look at what you do. Look at what you do. And in exposing it, he also extends forgiveness and a change of life and a new heart and a new beginning. See, I suppose in the same manner that Koalef kind of leaves us hanging, saying, look at the inhumanity. God, on the cross of Jesus Christ, says to us, look at this inhumanity. Turn from it. Turn to me and stop rejecting me. See, there's comfort. There's comfort because God comes with a pain as most acute, and he takes it upon himself. There's comfort because God doesn't leave the problem of evil to a, semester, sorry, to a subject of a seminar or to some class. But God on the cross, he allows evil to do its worst to him. He exhausts it. He drains it. And he emerges with new life. God overthrows death with resurrection. That's good news. 
See, God's comfort to those living east of Eden, God's comfort to those gripped in a world of winter is Jesus Christ. And God's help in the face of death is resurrection. That's good news. That's what Coalette's missing. He doesn't see it. But Coalette's right to have a hang up with death. If, if we are dead by the time the last time comes, if we don't exist when the last day comes, if we don't exist when God is there to do justice, then there is no justice. And the, the Apostle Paul would agree with him. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, something similar to Coalette, he says, if there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrection, then those who have died in Christ have perished. Let those words sink in. If there's no resurrection, those who have died in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ for this life only, then we are to be pitied more than anybody else. See, for Paul, just like Coalef, death was not some old friend to be welcomed. Death was an enemy, the enemy. But for Paul, from his horizon, after knowing Jesus, after seeing what God has done, he saw that death, death itself was an enemy that had been overthrown through Jesus' resurrection. And that death was a foe that would be utterly destroyed when Jesus would come back. That's the gospel hope. See, for Paul, as the rest of the New Testament writers, there is real hope and there is real joy in Jesus. There is justice and there is restoration because there is an embodied future in Jesus Christ. Resurrection. When justice comes, those in Christ will be alive. Not dead, alive. That's good news, isn't it? See, Coalette does, sorry, not Coalette, God does not intend creation to disappear into nothingness, including our bodies. God will raise our bodies from the dead that they might live in a renewed creation, a new heaven and a new earth. That's good news. A world with no death, but life, everlasting life. To put it in the words of someone who said this recently grieving a loss of their own son and looking at the hope that there is in the resurrection. He said this, Jesus wiped his feet on the face of death when he marched out of the tomb. Jesus wiped his feet on the face of death when he marched out of his tomb, crucified but alive again, all for us. That's why we celebrate every week. If there's no resurrection, we are to be pitied more than anybody else because we're falling on a false safety blanket and we basically might as well have blankets and triple chocolate, chocolate every Sunday. But there is a resurrection, as Paul writes. But Jesus was raised. And he is the proof that all in him will be raised. See, so don't despair like Coalef. Trust in Jesus. Don't despair. Trust in Jesus. The world is messy. But we're not alone. God is not distant. God is with us. He knows us. He knows what it's like. And God will restore. In the meantime, to use the words of Henri Nouan, our vocation as Christians is not to try and get caught up in, a, in thinking of suffering like it's some mathematical problem that needs to be solved. Our, prob, our job, our vocation is to follow Jesus and become witnesses of God's compassion in the concrete situations of our lives now. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you said you are the resurrection and the life. And help us to kind of take that hope to heart, Lord God. It's such an easy thing to sing. It's such an easy thing to kind of, I suppose, think up of some loose idea that just floats around. And maybe maybe for some of us, it's not even an important thing for us. And yet it's that resurrection, your resurrection, the resurrection to come, Lord God. It's the hope that spurred on the writers of the New Testament to talk about you. That they could look at your life, Lord Jesus, and your death and your resurrection. And in response to Coalette, they could turn around and say, God is our helper and God is our comforter. Because he lives, as one songwriter used to put it, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And so help us to take heart in all our sufferings. Help us not to become hardened in our heart against the sufferings of the world but help us to model your compassion in the world and be a signpost, Lord God, of your love, your comfort, and your help that is to come. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.